really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth, the podcast that offers news, results, predictions, and the occasional insight all about the world of rugby union. So this is the second of three parts of a bonus chat where I was joined by Dr. Tony Collins. He's an author of such great books as How Football Began and a particular favorite of mine, The Oval World. Uh, He's also a professor emeritus at De Montfort University. He's a research fellow at the Institute of Sports Humanities, and he's a visiting professor at Beijing University. He's also behind the fantastic podcast called Rugby Reloaded, which if you haven't caught it yet, I I strongly urge you to seek it out. And all those relevant links are in the show notes, as always. Uh, So I can't wait to continue with this. So without further ado, here is part two of our great conversation. And then, of course, there also had emerged a form of professional rugby, uh, rugby league, which I'm still, the fact that they didn't just come up with a new name is still baffling to me. But uh, can you talk about rugby league? Am I right in saying that you're actually a, a league fan more than a union fan? Well, I, I was I was born and bred in Hull, which is a rugby league hotbed. So, so yeah, it's kind of just part of my you know, natural, uh, natural tapestry of my life. So I, I, went, I was taking my first game when I was... Uh, Seven years old, and my father was taken by his father, and his father was taken by his father. And so yeah, it's just part. It's part. It's it's part of the blood. But I'm a scholar in both games. Um, so so R- rugby league really was the result of the 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 very strong clubs in the north of England, where rugby was, uh, apart from some pockets of soccer, rugby in the 1890s was the dominant game in the north of England. So for example, uh, the cities of Manchester and Liverpool, which today we think of as being you know, the absolute heartlands of soccer. In the 1880s, they were seen as, as, as rugby heartlands. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, amateurism meant that soccer, uh, amateurism in rugby uh, meant that you know, there were no league competitions, there was no national cup competition. So rugby found it very hard to compete with soccer in some areas. Um, but in, for most of the rugby clubs in, uh, in the north of England, in the industrial north of England, uh, they responded to the threat of soccer partially by... Uh, but they wanted to pay their players uh, because you know tens of thousands of people were going to matches, going to watch cup ties, and they um, uh, they believed that if they didn't pay their players, then the, you know the players they would eventually to, move to soccer, to soccer yeah. which one or two one or two did go did go over to play soccer where they could be paid openly. And the rugby union said that's was, not allowed. Was was, a, was cricket a competing animal at this point? Was that even in the on the picture? Cricket was, but cricket was seen as the traditional summer game, and so there were a lot of okay. players who, who played both soccer and right, cricket right. or rugby and cricket. Um, and in fact, on the 1888 um, uh, British Rugby Tour to Australia and New Zealand, um, the the um, co-captain of that team was a, a guy called Andrew Stoddart, who was also the captain of the England cricket team. Ah. So there was a lot of links between the two. Um, Really, up until really the 1960s, you still had players who played both games, one in the winter, one in the summer. Um, but in the north of England, the, um, a civil war broke out, really, between the Rugby Football Union and the industrial northern clubs. 
And that came to a head. The Northern club said, look, we think we should be allowed to pay our players what we call broken time payments, money that compensates them for the time they have to take off industrial jobs to play the game. And the rugby union said, no, no, that's not acceptable. We can't allow any form of payments. And if you pay your players, we're going to expel, we're going to expel you, uh, we're going to expel your clubs. And so the, the clubs in the north decided that, you know, they, they really had no choice. And in 18, August 1895, they, they broke away and formed what was first called the Northern Rugby Football Union, then changed its name in 1922 to, to Rugby League. And um, within a few years, within five, six years, pretty much most of the clubs in the north of England, most of the rugby clubs in the north of England had gone over to join the new rugby league. Um, and so it allowed players to be paid, changed the rules, uh, switched from 15 aside to 13 aside, which had been a debate in rugby for quite a while. Right. Uh, and got rid of the rooks and malls and introduced uh, what's called a play the ball, whereas where a player is tackled, they're released, they get up and play the ball with their foot behind them to, uh, to a player. They're, they're, and they got rid of the lineouts to make the game faster. The, the small amount of league I've watched looks a little closer to NFL football than Union does to me because of that sort of, you can sort of see the downs, I guess, is the way to... Absolutely, yeah, it is. Uh, in many ways, uh, rugby league, you could say that it's kind of halfway between traditional rugby union and American football. Um, and a lot of the, um, a lot of coaches in rugby league see that link as being very strong in that, the idea in league is that you run hard, tackle hard, and score touchdowns. Uh, whereas in rugby union, it, it, it's slightly different to that. There's much more uh, emphasis on the set piece mm-hmm. uh, and you know building players from set pieces. So, I think Americans, are, or at least I, was surprised to learn that professionalism didn't actually come to rugby union until 1995. That that seems shocking, even when I say it now. Yeah. Um, do you think that was inevitable? It, it seems like the, it, you know, as soon as league happened, it seemed like the writing was on the wall. Do you think? Well, initially what happened when league broke away, um, the, the rugby union authorities felt this is a really positive thing. Uh, they lost a lot of players. It weakened the England team, but they felt it was positive because in their eyes, they were still very much part of that earlier tradition of rugby was a game to educate people. Right, right. And the idea that you should make money out of it, it, it was seen as being almost mercenary. Uh, it wasn't part of the game, and so there, but and that many, was how many they people the were against the whole the idea game. of spectators. Is that right? Just the idea that's right, of yeah. having the the the, the teaming yeah. masses there. It's just that's against right. the idea. Yeah, yeah, because they felt that rub, the idea, the the principle of rugby was to play the game, to keep fit, and to learn the spirit of rugby, teamwork, fair play, and all, all the sort of moral aspects of you know still muscular Christianity, as many people saw it. And so it took many decades for that to loosen, and even in the when it really in the eight, in the 1980s, after the World Cup began in 1987, it became clear that sooner or later that professionalism would come. But there was still a huge number of people in the game who resisted that, who felt mm-hmm. that it would be a betrayal of those principles of the game, the spirit of the game, to allow professionalism. But So they, they, um, they sort of doubled down at that point? Uh, well, they tried to, but it, by that time it was too late. Um, the World Cup was already a massive success. Uh, you know, TV companies were offering... Uh, huge amounts to televise it, uh, and the players wanted to pay in. And the other thing that happened is kind of um, the 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 set the um, the wheel of history coming around full circle was in was that in 1995 there was a uh, a civil war broke out in rugby league between uh, in Australia, 
um, between two media moguls who wanted to buy the digital rights to rugby league. And so there were there was hundreds of millions of dollars being thrown at players. And the great fear in rugby union, particularly in Australia, was that um, uh, rugby league would buy up rugby union players because there was so much money available. Mm. And so the Australian rugby league and the New Zealand rugby league, just before the 1995 World Cup, actually approached the media companies to try and come to a deal whereby they could um, they could go professional and protect themselves from the threat wow. of losing players to, to rugby league. And which was really, it would have happened anyway. Uh, it was coming. It was, uh, there was nothing that could really be done to hold back the tide. Mm. This just happened to be the catalyst. It, this just, this was just the, uh, the thing that lit the blue touch paper, but it could have been something else at a later date. It, we would have still been where we are today. I, I think it would have come, you know, within a year or two, if that had not happened. I like to think of all these different codes as sort of diaspora of that original rugby. So a lot of these codes continued to evolve often in ways that were contingent on where it was being played and other factors like that. So can you talk about the differences between, for instance, rugby union and I don't know, Aussie rules. Uh, I don't know much about it. It's uh, if you think rugby is hard to find in the U S try looking for Aussie rules football. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, um, Aussie rules is very interesting because it's it's kind of confined entirely to Australia and primarily it um, it began in one city and it dominates one city in Melbourne, which is the, the capital of the Australian state of Victoria. And it's slowly spread out to um, to other cities in the south of Australia. I mean, there's actually not that many. Uh, Adelaide, Perth and Tasmania, which is the island uh, down below. Um, it, it, and it derived from rugby. Um, the guy who started the first club, Tom Wills, uh, was Australian, but he'd been sent to be educated, like lots of Australians at that time, in England. He went to okay. rugby school, and he was actually the captain of the rugby cricket team. Oh. Um, but he's a keen footballer, and he came back, he played, he was a very good cricketer, he played for Melbourne Cricket Club. And he, um, in uh, 1850, 1858, I think, um, wrote a letter to one of the local papers, said, look, um, what should cricketers do during the winter when there's no cricket to play i would suggest we form a football team and so uh, melbourne uh, melbourne football club was formed and initially the first rules were based on those of rugby but um this is 1859 so it's way before there's any governing bodies for any sports mm -hmm. and so uh, the guys in melbourne think well we can improve it a bit. We, they, had, they, yeah, had tons we, of, they had tons of space i think was lots, one of, the of, factors. lots of lots of space lots of time and and so, like like most people, when they in that period when they took up football, they started thinking about well, how can we make it better? Uh, they didn't like rugby's offside rule, whereby you can't pass the ball forward, you can't go ahead of if, uh, can't go ahead of your own teammates, and so they uh, allowed players to go offside, and you could kick downfield to them. And so the the kind of um, uh, the 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 most important feature, the key feature, the defining wow. feature of Australian rules is that huge long kicks downfield and players jump up and catch the ball above their, their hands, uh, which is called a mark, which was a, a feature of rugby uh, for, well, in fact, people still call a mark uh, when you mm -hmm. catch the ball on the full. Yeah. Uh, in, in Aussie rules, it's, like, it, it's slightly more spectacular. Um, and they decided on, um, uh, very, over time, they moved away from scrum, so there's no scrums in the game. Uh, they, there's 18 players on the side. Um, it's, it's it's not like any other um, 
code of football that's derived from rugby. It's it's very much its own. And it's kind of a bit like, um, uh, and I'm sure my friends in Melbourne will hate me for saying this, but it's kind of like an, uh, an evolutionary, um, a, a branch of, an evolutionary branch of the tree of football that's branched off all on its own with very little connection to any of the other types of football. Because obviously you can, as you just said, you can see the connection between uh, American football, rugby league, and then rugby union. And so, you know, Canadian football, of course, is, you know, quite close to American football, mm-hmm. has, its, has, a, has very, very similar roots. But Aussie rules is kind of all out on its own. It was sort of geographically isolated. And also it became very, very popular very, very quickly. Um, it attracted um, huge crowds in the 1860s and in many ways was the first um, well, mass spectator version of football that was played that could attract big crowds from right across the community. So it was a bit of a trailblazer in a lot of ways as well. And it was professional from the get-go or...? No, it was a, again, um, it still followed what we talked about earlier, earlier, muscular Christian principles. So until the, um, really until the 18, 1890s, there was no hint of the game, of players being paid in the game. Oh. Uh, and it's, um, it's only really probably um, the, the major organiser, the, the key um, organiser, the governing body today is called the Australian Football League. And up until the 1980s, that was called the Victorian Football League. Uh, and it, it was only really in the, um, at the start of the 20th century, in the 1900s, that professionalism was, was accepted oh, wow. in, in Aussie rules. So uh, this trickle down, the, the diaspora, as I described it, it, it reaches Australia, it reaches New Zealand, basically any place um, that are sort of colonized by the English. So down in India, and uh, I think there's even Sri, Sri Lankan rugby still exists today, I've, I've seen. But of course, yeah. inevitably it, it spread to North America. I think it sort of took root in the top schools in Canada and the United States, much like in the UK. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that's right. It's it's really, the, the, the rugby derived codes of football are really a product of what we might call the English speaking world. Um, the, what the British called the white dominions of the empire, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And also in many ways, despite obviously there was, this, uh, there was a war of independence against the British. Uh, many people in America there was a in the 19th century still, still felt themselves to be very closely, sure. culturally at least, part, you know, part of that English-speaking British world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, so, uh, so Americans, um, as America developed, particularly after the Civil War, um, when it looked overseas for models. How can we develop? You know, what are the secrets of the successful nations? And when they looked at Britain, like many people, they saw games, British sports as being one of the defining features of how Britain trained its youth, if you like, and kept itself healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so football, in its most generic sense, um, as you say, came to the elite schools on the East Coast in the 1850s, 1860s, in an organised way. I mean, there'd always been sort of football, informal folk football type games played. Uh, and Native Americans have their own versions as well that date back centuries. But um, the kind of modern games really do come directly from um, from Britain and Tom Brown School Days, which is a massive bestseller in, in the States as well as it was in Britain. Of course. So it's, it's my impression that the, that legacy of these elite schools that we I think we still see that 
the best college level rugby union programs in the U.S. are still concentrated in the Ivy League schools for sure. Dartmouth, Yale, Brown, Penn State, those schools have big, vibrant rugby programs. Uh, do you think that is a legacy or is that just a coincidence? No, that is a legacy. I, I think when you, um, uh, when you look at when rugby came to the States, 1860s, 1870s, um, it, it takes as its model the British model, which at that point was heavily based on the private schools and the universities. And so the idea that, that rugby and then later football is an essential part of high school culture, of college culture, is, is really a, a, a uniquely American development of what was going on in, in British rugby okay. in the 1860s. So it's kind of, um, you know, without Tom, it sounds ridiculous when you think about it, but it's true. Without Tom Brown's school days, there would be no Friday Night Lights. It's true. Wow. <laughs> I never wanted to draw that line that far back. I, I think it's actually solid. But it's that but, school culture, yeah, because in rugby school and the other private schools, football culture, rugby culture was so strong. And that was exported to America and taken up by Americans and became you know, even more important to the American education system than what it is in Britain. Well, I mean, when it's this thing that's instilled in you, that's not just a game that you play, that also is sort of representative of a larger moral you. Of course, when you come out of a program like that, you want to bring that. It's like knock on people's yeah. doors and say, hey, I have good news. So, yeah, just like rugby. Yeah. Yeah. So was there an event or a significant factor or something that led these codes that have now sort of landed in Canada and the United States to then make these massive changes that we've seen now? Um Obviously, a lot of those changes are based on the idea of speeding it up. I know, like the, the play the ball mentioned, uh, thing you've mentioned before was an, uh, an attempt to speed things up, um, instituting downs, forward passes, these types of things make the game sort of faster, more, I guess they would say, explosive. Um, was there something that caused those things to start to happen, or was it just natural evolution? Uh, to some extent, it was natural evolution because you have a um, um, in the 1870s, when rugby starts to evolve very quickly into what we know as American football, introduction of downs, uh, blocking, uh, which was you kind of got in some limited form uh, in early rugby, but not to the extent that it became in the States. Mm. Um, those things started to come in the 1870s. And obviously, you know, I'm sure many listeners will be aware of Walter Camp, his importance to American football and the development of the rules of the game. Uh, Camp was a was a great scholar of rugby. He, uh, you know, you can look through the Camp papers at Yale, and he, you know, he looks at all the different types of rugby: rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules, Canadian football. He's a genuine, you know, polymath of wow. the game, and he, um, uh, um, he's kind of the leader of a rugby. He's not the only person who thinks, look, how can we make rugby better? for an American audience. Just in the same way in Aussie rules, they thought, how can we make rugby better for an Australian audience? Um, so camp and people in the States, but also in Canada as well, it's not just an American thing. Um, they start to tinker with the rules. And in fact, it's the Canadians who first come up with the idea of the, uh, of the line of scrimmage yeah. and the snap to move away from scrimmaging because they think that there's the scrimmaging goes on too long. Mm -hmm. You can't see the ball. Uh, it's no good for spectators. Um, it goes against what the way they want to play the game by running and passing the ball. It's too slow. 
which is also one of the concerns that the, the rugby league teams, the teams that form the rugby league, have in in, in England. Um, so these are very so these the, the problems that people perceive as existing in rugby at that time um, are, are, are seen with Australian rules to some extent. They get rid of the scrums in in rugby league in Canada and America. And so the Canadians introduce a uh, a no scrum game with kind of kind of like downs, but with a line of scrum, it's two lines facing each other. Uh, they play the ball backwards instead of trying to kick it forwards, as it was huh. originally in, in the scrums. Huh. And it kind, of, it kind of evolved very quickly, partly because it becomes very popular. It becomes the game of, you say, the Ivy, Ivy, League, Ivy League colleges, and they attract big crowds to their games because, you know, you know rival, Ivy League rivalry is, is, has, has always been very intense. Um, sure. And it becomes a symbol of, um, you know, sporting dominance is a symbol of, uh, it's something that's to be, something that, uh, something that the uh, each each college wants. Uh, its alumni get behind it, and so and the, so this, the evolution this is, of the this game is all amateur. Very quickly, yeah, it all has to be amateur. I imagine too. Oh, were absolutely, there, yeah. Were there arguments about that? Were there issues about professionalism, or was it you know just? Paying players, or at least giving uh, benefits to players in terms of jobs, um, giving them gifts, um, you know, providing them with opportunities to you know to do work that does to have jobs that doesn't really involve any work, uh, became very common in in college football in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, and there were constant attempts to um, uh, to to stamp it out because that was felt to be. A perversion of amateurism, right? And certainly the leaders of of, um, of American football and Walter Camp in particular were very, very strong advocates of amateurism. Oh, which is really, and that's the legacy of you know that's why the NCAA still uh, you know likes to think of itself as amateur, tries to defend its, its amateur status. Wow, it, it goes all the way back to the origins of the game, so it's very much part of the part of the game's culture. Um, and it's something that they were never fully able to stamp stamp out. So this evolutionary uh, diaspora in the in Canada and the U.S. Um, I, I think I've heard you call it gridiron football, which I think is the perfect way to sort of separate it from these other forms. That's sports like the NFL, the Canadian Football League, which, again, uh, I mentioned earlier, anything you're seeing at the highest level is going to be good. <clears throat> Watching the Grey Cup is is a lot of fun. The, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's great. It's always it's almost always snowing, and it's a, it's a beautiful yeah. ceremony where they bring in the Mounties to bring the trophy in and stuff. It's great. Um, I think there's a gridiron football league in Germany still. Is that right? Do you know about that? Yeah, um, yeah, they play, they play American football um, for a whole series of historic reasons. I mean, I think mainly because the um, um, because uh, in the aftermath of well, in the aftermath of World War One, and particularly in World War Two, and the the advent of the Cold War, obviously there was a there was a huge American military presence in Germany, uh, and football was played quite extensively on military bases, and it created a lot of interest in Germany, and so. When the NFL start, um, started its European league, yeah, the the um, NFL Europe, NFL Europe, yeah, it, it ended up with um, basically all the teams apart from one being based in Germany, and, and so the and you know there's uh, there's a handful of German players who've made it over to play in the in the CFL and one or two in the in mm -hmm. the NFL. So so the, there is a strong tradition of NFL uh, or American football uh, style football. In Germany, but it's not on the. It, you know, it, it, it's probably a little bit more popular 
in terms of participation than rugby in Germany, but you know that that's probably debatable. I guess I guess German rugby fans would probably dispute that. But <laughs> the game has always managed to draw large crowds to you know, to to high quality matches. So why do you think that the the gridiron version of the code hasn't really wormed its way into the UK and Europe? So and let me ask you this, and you might this might just be your feeling, but so do you think is the popularity of the NFL where you live? comparable to the popularity of rugby union here where I am in the United States? Yeah, I think more so. I mean, I, um, uh, well, the NFL on, has so much money. They can probably hit you with advertisements. Yeah. And also there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of tourists. Well, there was before COVID. There was a lot of tourist traffic between, uh, Britain and the States and people would go and see matches uh, in it, it. I think you talked to you, you, you kind of, uh, your average sports fan in the UK, and they're probably going to know who Tom Brady is. Mm. Uh, they will have watched the Super Bowl. They will be aware of the NFL. Some of them will be aware that it's starting this week. Whereas I don't think you're going to get that in states. Um, no, even Jonah Lamu, uh, he's not a name I heard before I started watching. Yeah, um, partly because the NFL has done a great job in publicising it. It's, it started to be televised regularly in the UK in the 1980s mm. and it acquired a kind of cult following and then the nfl europe started and you know for the last i don't yeah, know maybe but, 10 years there's been there's been games you know, yeah NFL the, london, games, the london regular games, season so, games which so, somehow london, yeah. we, somehow we always managed to send two of the worst teams i, I just don't know yeah what, hey what it the, doesn't matter to the brits they still turn out yeah it seems like that but i, I just feel like they're not doing themselves any favors <laughs> it's like okay it's another, a, i've got to say, i've got to say you go and there's a lot of people uh, there's actually a lot of americans have come over uh for a weekend you know a weekend oh. it's a great tour it's it's a great tourist attraction <laughs> you go go visit england and so then you go to london and you go to an nfl game that that's like going to yeah the, if you go watch the jaguars get beaten yeah. <laughs> it's like going to the the mcdonald's in downtown tokyo i guess <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah kind of but so it's so the nfl has done a great job in in um uh in publicizing the game in britain and in europe but also i guess it's partly because the um you know, the world's become a smaller place over the last 20 years. Mm. Satellite TV means, you know, I can sit here in Leeds in the north of England and I can watch every type of football. If I, if, I, if I can pay for it, I can watch rugby union from all around the world, rugby league from all around the world, the NFL, college football, the CFL, Aussie rules, Gaelic football. Yeah, I can watch everything. And, wow. you know, there are a lot of people who do. League is simply not available here because obviously I've spent a lot of time, I, I follow multiple union leagues so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm watching Super Rugby. I'm watching the Pro 14. I'm watching the Prem. I'm watching Major League Rugby. Uh, there is no league available. I just can't find it. You can go on YouTube and find things, obviously, but that's yeah, not I don't thing. know what's happening with the TV contracts. I mean, the, the NRL, the Australian League, is is a huge league, along with the Australian Football League, the Aussie Rules League. It's, it's one of the two dominant leagues in Australia, and they they play to a very very high standard. Uh, of football in Britain, the home of the game, uh, the top professional league is called the Super League. Uh, not quite the same level as the Australians, but uh, it's you know it's it, it's a great spectacle. Um, but yeah, I don't know what's happening with the TV contracts around the world. Well, the the league I wish I could follow is the French Top Fourteen. That just seems like such great quality stuff. And it, again, it's just unfindable here. Really, so. I'm surprised at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting because there's something interesting about watching a rugby either code in French stadiums. There's a more yeah. 
It's it's different from what it's different from watching a game anywhere else in the world. Oh, There's a particular I love it. French quality to it. They bring yeah. the marching bands in there. Yeah, playing the drum. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's a real <laughs> community sport. Yeah. So after at least a couple of unsuccessful attempts to build professional rugby here in the United States, it looks like it's finally working. I'd say. So I myself am a founding member and a season ticket holder for my New England Free Jacks in Major League Rugby. Uh, the fact that they made it through the worst period of COVID and came back stronger, I think that bodes really well for the league. Do you do you agree about that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's uh, it survived. And I think that's a big thing uh, with COVID. And also, just in general, the, the, the inevitable financial difficulties that startup well, leagues have. The owners took a bath because when, when COVID happened, so it's funny, I'm, I'm wearing, right now I'm wearing the shirt, it's, it's my Free Jacks inaugural, uh, inaugural season first day shirt which was scheduled to be March 14th, 2020. Massachusetts locked down on March 13th. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, but the owners got together and they said, you know what, if we cancel these contracts for these players, they're just going to disappear and we're going to be starting over. So they paid every one of those contracts. So if you, you weren't playing rugby, but you were getting paid, I think that was a, a pretty bold move. And I think it's paid off. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that's needed because it's, it's commitment. It's long-term commitment that's needed to build the sport because um, uh, you know, people think, well, you set up a league, people come along to see it, and all your problems are solved. It's not. It takes a long, long time to get people to come and watch a team consistently, to to buy into a team, to feel that the team is part of their lives. So they're gonna they're they're gonna go and watch games. They're gonna take people along to games, uh, and that requires a lot of commitment from the owners, a lot of commitment from the league, and and making a lot of hard decisions. And I think. You know, it's Major League Rugby. I've got to say, I'm quite surprised that it survives as well as it has done. Because not because yeah. of anything, any problem I've got with it, but no. just because of the track record. I mean, for example, the British Rugby League, the Super League, um, had a team in Toronto, uh, right. which was uh, uh, had been promoted through the various leagues, was doing pretty well, and then COVID came and it basically collapsed, and it doesn't so, exist is it in the, that format anymore. The Wolfpack, is that right? Yeah, the Wolfpack, Toronto Wolfpack. Are they the uh, one? Didn't they hire Izzy? Wasn't he on their team? Yeah, Sonny Bill Williams. They got yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, not, that, not that I would confuse those guys. I just had that wrong. Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, 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 and partly because they, you know, trying to compete in a transatlantic league when uh, you know countries are stopping people from traveling is uh, is pretty impossible. Well, I swear. So when, yeah, when so I, Major League Rugby the, has done a great job. Yeah. When I heard of the Toronto Wolfpack, I thought there's got to be a Toronto in England. This has to be another one of those things where yeah. we, we just stole the name from an English town. But now I, I had no idea there was a transatlantic uh, league. They they, did, they played for three seasons, did really well, and then COVID came and. Uh, they had, yeah, you know, like all teams, they have a lot. They had a lot. They had financial problems, structural problems, all the rest of it. Sure. But COVID basically, but COVID basically just made those uh, made those worse, and it was impossible to carry on. So that does it for another installment of this great interview. Thanks again so much to Tony for joining me. I mean, it's I'm just so lucky to get a true expert on the show. It's been so much fun. Uh, please check out all the links in the show notes. Go back and listen to part one if you haven't already heard it. It's just great. Um, as always, follow me on Twitter. I am at of Scrum. I'm also via the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. If you have a moment, please, please leave a review. Help me grow the pod. It's always uh, really, really useful for me. Thank you. Thank you as always. Cheers and be well. Bye.